Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. First Peter, but I'm actually going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts first, and then we will get to our regular passage. One of the activities that I love doing is reading biographies. Is there anyone else here that loves to read biographies? Oh, I love reading biographies. I love reading about men and women that have li- lived interesting lives. I enjoy reading about how they grew up, their schooling, and all those things that made them who they were. I enjoy reading biographies of politicians and soldiers and inventors, but I especially enjoy reading biographies of men and women that were faithful servants of God. Their courage and their strength is inspiring, and their faithfulness to God in the midst of difficult times is instructive. Not that they were perfect, but even in their imperfection, they were used mightily of God and serve as examples of the flock. So I would encourage you, Read great biographies. Fathers, let your children read the biographies of men and women of Christ. We're going to be putting some in the back there for you to read, but I encourage you, there are some wonderful, wonderful biographies. Now, Peter, as we've been looking at 1 Peter, he has been spending some time encouraging and challenging the elect exiles in how to respond to suffering. He opened his letter by reminding them of the wonderful, great mercy of God in salvation. That results in a promised inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Knowing that this world is not their eternal home, but temporary, they were exhorted to rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, he writes, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter explained that these various trials would test the very genuineness of their faith. Peter challenges that the key to rejoicing is suffering is by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, we are to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He went on to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, who, but as he who has called you is holy, be holy. Over these last few chapters, Peter has been unpacking these themes. As elect exiles, these Asian minor Christians, they were to live differently than the world. Peter reminded them that they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, chosen that they may proclaim the excellencies of God who had called them out of the darkness into his marvelous light. They were to keep in mind that once they were not a people, but now they were, that once they had not received mercy, but now they had These past few weeks, we have seen that one way that you and I, as well as those original readers of 1 Peter, were called was to proclaim the greatness of God is through submission. Submission to governing authorities, those of authority in our social structures, speaking of work and all those types of things in our marriage and as well as in church. Submission entails humbleness, sympathy, a tender heart, brotherly love, and a desire to honor God in all of our relationships. To accomplish this, we found that at times we must surrender our rights to retaliate retaliate, or to seek out our own benefit. 
Many times others may abuse our submission, yet we are called to respond in love, seeking the welfare of others as we live out the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now this submission, this surrendering of our rights, this seeking to please God does not go unnoticed, Peter says, as Peter reminded them, these children of God, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To those who live out their calling as elect exiles, God has promised life and good days. Now, not here in the here and now, but in eternity where our inheritance is kept and guarded by God. And until that day, you and I are to make a conscious effort to choose good and to devote ourselves to promote peace. That is what we've been studying these last few weeks. Again, this response to suffering serves many times to proclaim the excellencies of God. Though not promised to everyone, this is one of the means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses to open the eyes of the blind that they may taste and see that God is good. Please take your Bible and turn again to Acts chapter 5. In this chapter, we looked at earlier when Landon excuse me, read our scripture reading, we get a great example of this type of submission and suffering in action. Again, as you see, Peter and, and John, they had, they had healed a, a, a lame man, I think, at this time. It's, I think it's a lame man. And in it, we see that they're, they're being, uh, uh, not crucified, but they're being persecuted for it. They do not like what's going on. But let's continue here in Acts chapter 5. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, this is where John and them said, listen, we're going to continue to obey God rather than man. When they heard this, the religious council, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you do do with these men. In verse 36, for before these days, <coughs> excuse me, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Look at verse 38. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will what? Fail. But is it of God? you would not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Father, we just come before you this morning. We just ask that, that, that we humble our hearts. Send your spirit that we may not quench that. Open our minds and our ears to hear your word. Father, let us tell the difference between uh, your truth and, and maybe my mere opinion and let me be a very cousin of that. Uh, bless the, the study that went into it. And Father, most of all, I pray that we would respond to what your Holy Spirit will be calling us to do this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. <coughs> From the book of Acts, we see several things happening here. First, we see that the church is growing very rapidly. At this time, the church of Jerusalem was growing by leaps and bounds. In Acts chapter 2, and we're just going to kind of do a quick review here. In Acts chapter 2, Luke records that 3,000 people were saved at the day of Pentecost. 
In Acts 4, Luke records that 5,000 men, not speaking of their families and their children, believed. Luke records that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 6, Luke writes that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests also became obedient to the faith. So the church is growing rapidly. The second thing I saw is that though the people are responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, some of the religious leaders were confused and frightened and furious. In Acts 4, we read that as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the camp, uh, speaking of the disciples, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested and they put them into custody. Bringing the disciples for the council, they asked, by what power or what name do you do these things? Peter goes on to answer them by proclaiming that they do it in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. Well, you can see how they might be annoyed. You might see as they, as they think they did not endear themselves to the council. And the council desired more to punish them. And Luke tells us that the religious leaders debated among themselves, what should we do with these men? For a, a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all what has happened here. And even we cannot deny it. If we go back to Acts chapter 14, look at verse 17. You see that the council decide that in order that it may no spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, speaking of the disciples, and they charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. The disciples did not let these warnings and these accusations and these threats deter them from the Great Commission. Looking down at verse 29 of chapter 4, if you're there, we see the disciples' prayer. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. Let me ask you, is, is that your response to suffering? Is that your response to intimidation when it comes to sharing the gospel with others? Now back to our passage in Acts chapter 5, if you're there. We see that the council seeks, the, or finally sees reason through the words of Gamaliel. He points out that it was common for men to be drawn away into something bigger in themselves, to give themselves to a cause. He points out that they must be careful in case the disciples of God or the disciples were of God. Though not listed as a believer of Christ, this teacher understood that you cannot oppose the work of God. However, they abused their power in verse 40, as Luke records, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let him go. But look at the response of the disciples to this abuse of power in verse 41. Then the disciples, they left the presence of the councils, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. 
This pattern repeats throughout the book of Acts, whether it's Peter and John, Stephen the first martyr, or Paul and Silas. Believers were faithful in preaching and teaching the gospel, suffering persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles and the authorities, and enduring with joy that leads more people coming to salvation. That's the pattern of Scripture. To Peter's original readers in Asia Minor, these men and women would have served as living examples of courage and faithfulness. The fact that it's Peter himself writing would have been both encouraging and daunting. How could we live up to our heroes of the faith? Yet Peter is encouraging and commanding these elect exiles to follow his example in enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. And this comes down through the ages and through history as commands and challenges and encouragements to you and I. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it reminds us that we are ambassadors of God of, of, for Christ. God making His appeal through us. And our message is the same today as it was there. As we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our simple message. That's a great command, uh, commission. Yet as we see throughout Scripture and history, this message of reconciliation is costly. The children of God call it the good news, while those that are blinded by Satan consider it hate speech, dangerous and foolish. Their ignorance is on full display, has led them to malign, to beat, to torture and kill God's messengers over the years. They seek to silence its message and destroy all that it stands for. These early Christians in Asia Minor might have received Peter's commands about suffering and submission with confusion, dread, and fear. What Peter is asking of them, what God requires, is a cost, a sacrifice that is very high, very different from what you and I many times are sold in churches and in pulpits. Too many times or too many of them in those days, it will cost the loss of family ties, social acceptance, economic struggles, and maybe even death. And today we see the same thing. Even in our church, we have some who have experienced loss of family ties and difficulties in their jobs and in their, and in their businesses for accepting Christ and for wanting to follow Him boldly. To many, this would have been very daunting, causing them to pause and to doubt whether or not they could continue to submit to Christ. And if you're like me, the cost of following Christ will many times cause you to pause and doubt. Well, that leads us now to Peter's letter, to Peter's letter as we look at his words today to these people. That's the background. This is what maybe he's going through their mind. He then writes this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13, it's there on the screen or in your Bible. Follow along silently with me as we read. So in that background, in that context, Peter writes this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to what? Shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, I want to give you six observations. Six observations about this passage. First, Peter starts with a rhetorical question. Look at the beginning. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Peter seems to be answering a question of fear that would naturally arise from those elect exiles concerning the consequences of the submission that he has just been writing to them. Peter is commanding them to submit to government authorities who had the power to kill them for refusing to worship Caesar as God. They were called to submit to their masters who could legally beat them. Wives were called to submit even if their husbands were not believers. And believers were called to love each other and those outsiders that hated them. Many of these believers were not in a position to defend themselves or to protect the ones they loved. Yet God commands that, these, that this was his will, for, or his will for their lives. In this submission, some would come to proclaim Christ. Peter writes to them that their submission, their good conduct and pure heart would actually serve to be a witness for Christ. Now Peter's question is rhetorical in nature, meaning that the answer is evident. Who is there to harm you for zealous? In other words, he's saying there's no one. There's no one that will harm the believer for doing good works. Generally speaking, no one desires to harm those who actually do good, but they admire him. People like Jesus and Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. are just a few examples of those that have lived lives of service and self-sacrifice, preaching nonviolence that are admired and held in the high esteem by those around the world. He has pointed out that even the most hardened of hearts usually respond positively towards those that do good. This is a general rule. However, as we look at the second point, Peter does give a wonderful promise that even when that happens, there's a wonderful promise in the first part of verse 14. For he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, Peter does understand that though some, like the religious leaders in Jerusalem, will not respond positively to the ministry of the gospel. And to be honest, we're seeing that today just before I came in. This is a side note, so I hope I don't uh, lose where I'm going here. But uh, just this morning, I read that uh, there is a, two men uh, through a group were suing churches in um, Hawaii because they met in local schools. And that's all throughout the nation. This has happened in, in New York as well. But they were suing the schools because even though they were the, the, the churches were paying rent, normal rent, the, rec the recognized rent that all people would pay, that the churches were also very common, would, would paint and do classrooms and do other types of things to bless the church. I, uh, um, Beacon uh, here at El Medina does the same, and, and some of the other uh, pastors here in Orange that meet it, they do the same thing. They do other types of things outside of giving rent just to be a blessing to the schools. Well, they're saying that if they could do that, then they could pay more rent. And so because they're doing good things, they're suing them. Uh, the whole part, point is to kick them out of the schools. So in other words, even though we know most people appreciate it, there will be some that will be not. And we know this throughout, even here in America, we see more and more that the works that Christians do are not uh, being accepted any longer. 
They will not rejoice in the healing of the blind and the lame. They will not give glory to God for the salvation of the souls as we see these Sadducees and these Pharisees. They will not be swayed by the pure hearts and conduct of believers. We understand this. They will respond with hatred and hostility, seeking to destroy the ministry and the message of Christ at all costs. We see this in our own newspapers, and our own media. They, the believers, like us today, needed to understand that suffering is not, and please get this, suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure towards you, but it's a sign of God's blessing if that suffering comes from following God, from obeying His, 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 his commands. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Now that blessing is not a promise for the here and now, but an internal reward. Do not listen to those who proclaim that God has promised health, wealth, and prosperity to those who demonstrate great faith. If that was the case, then you and I must view, the, view Peter, Paul, and the other disciples as faithless reprobates who failed in their ministry. Pure and simple. For they all died. John the Baptist lost his head and lost all of his disciples. Would we claim that God was displeased with him? No, not at all. So now Peter follows up with that, with that thing, saying, listen, there is going to be a sense in which some are not going to respond, and you will suffer because of it. But do not worry, you are blessed. There is something waiting for you. There is an eternal home for you. Now, the third, Peter follows up with how to do this in verse 14 and 15. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, in verse 14. <clears throat> in other words, you and I are not to fear or be troubled about what unbelievers can do to us. It's important for them not to give those who victimize Christians more power than God has given them. Listen, believers are to fear God and God alone. In Scripture, we are never to fear man or circumstances or consequences. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 not to fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is this speaking of? Not Satan, but God himself. Jesus understands that following him is costly, and he begs us, Come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will Find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Peter himself will write a little later in this letter, cast all your cares, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So have no fear of those who can even take your life. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. A wonderful portion of Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, in this famous passage, Paul encourages the church of Rome <clears throat> that is undergoing great persecution with these great words. What shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is the same as Peter is saying. It is God who justifies, verse 34. Who is to condemn? 
Christ is the one who has died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Verse 35, here's the great hymn. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, or for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no height, no death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you're suffering through doubt, if you're suffering through anxiety, if you're pausing, if you're worried about the consequences of following Christ, let me put your mind at ease. Scripture tells us that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do not fear what man can do, but boldly obey him. Christian, do not fear about the consequences of following Christ and his commands. Yes, the cost is very high. It's painful and difficult, but do not let fear and anxiety rob you of the joy found in enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. So not only are we not to be troubled or be fearful, but the second thing that he tells us in verse 15 is to honor Christ in our hearts. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. One theologian notes that the heart is the origin of human behavior and from it flows everything that people do. Jesus taught in Matthew that where your treasure is, there where your heart will be also. King Solomon warned his young son in the book of Proverbs to keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. In the same way, we must determine to keep Jesus as our first love. Our proclamation of allegiance to Jesus is that Christ, the Son of, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Scripture tells us that in Jesus there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Scripture also tells us that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and proclaim that he is Lord. To remember this is how you and I endure suffering with joy. As ambassadors of Christ, sent out by him, for him, to proclaim his message, we serve the one who is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether it's thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the one that you and I serve. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Even in our anxiety, in our worry, in our doubt, let's make him preeminent. Not those who cause our suffering, but the one who brings us through it. The fourth observation as we continue on is that you and I, we honor God by being prepared to share the gospel. As he says, always being prepared to make a defense, 
to give a reason for the hope. Peter is calling them to be prepared to share with others the hope that helps you endure suffering. Again, as a reminder, this hope that we see in Scripture is not wishful thinking. Like, I I hope my ship comes in, or I hope I win the lottery, or I hope it's a boy, or I hope that it's a girl. But it's a confident expectation that God will fulfill all of his promises. That's the hope of the Christian. When we respond with humility and love and suffering, this will draw attention by those around us. They will be naturally curious as we respond differently than they do. To some, this will cause them to hate us, to spite us, and to avoid us. But to others, it will intrigue them. They will want to know, how do you respond in such a way? To many, it will win you the opportunity to share the gospel and what Christ has done and how you can face the death of a young one, a death in the family, or a financial uh, disaster. How do you do that? Well, let me tell you about the one who died for me. Let me give you the hope that I may see my loved one in heaven. Oh, let me tell you about the one who gives me all good things and said he'll provide my needs. This is the hope that we have to share with those who suffer and see suffering each and every day. Now, it's incumbent on the Christian to know and understand Scripture. He says, be prepared to give a reason. Now, this is not saying that everyone has to be a scholar or a trained theologian. But it does mean that we're not to be ignorant of our faith and the Word of God. We should know the big picture of God's story, how it fits together in the power of the gospel. That's why we, here in our church, we preach, preach through the books of the Bible in our worships of service. It's why we teach the tenets of our faith in our adult core classes. And we talk about applying what we learned in small groups. I would encourage each and every one of you to be involved in as many of these as you can. Make them a priority. Ask someone to mentor you in the Christian faith, to walk alongside of you and devote yourself to the reading and meditating of God's word. This is God's calling for us as the body of Christ, to walk together, not alone. The fifth observation then is that our character and motives serve as a defense against hostility. Look what he says. As you give your hope, do it with gentleness and respect, having a Good conscience, he says in verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Our character and motives serves as a defense against the hostility of those around us. You see, a good conscience refers to the relationship between God and his children. We now are made right with God. Not that we are right, not that we are perfect, but we are made right with God. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, he tells us to continue to confess our sins, but when we do, he says he cleanses us and we can walk in fellowship with him. Peter has already exhorted them to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all adults and all slander. You see, our behavior in Christ, just like our good works, should be noticeable. Remember the video of the Egyptian newscaster of several weeks ago. He was noticeably affected by the love of Christians who forgave their husband and their father's murder. He says, look at these Christians. I could not have done this. What a powerful video. You and I respond to those who are hostile to our faith with gentleness and respect. And you and I know, without getting all down in the dumps and being self-pity, 
is that we now live in a world that is more and more hostile to the Christian faith, more and more hostile to, hostile to the gospel and to what we believe. And when we see ourselves in there, there's that tendency to strike back, to attack, to defend ourselves, to say we're a Christian nation and we're going to take it back. But that is not God's tools for how we do it. Our response is not political action committees. It's not raising all sorts of money. It's not sitting out there and rioting and protesting as the world does. It's gentleness and respect with love that they may be, uh, um, they may be uh, charged with the power of God and what he's doing in our lives. That does not mean that we agree or affirm, though, their hatred and their ignorance. But we understand that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and I think this would change your mind. This would change how we see those that we would say are enemies of our faith. That in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I don't want to get too political, and I don't want to make, because even in our, in our assembly, we, we have different people from different backgrounds, different political backgrounds, different thoughts, and some of you are struggling with how to deal with culture today. But let me say this. We would do much better than responding with hate or anger or throwing the Bible at someone is to realize that those people are really not our enemy. See, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers and opinions that are raised up against Christ. You and I must remember that those people who want to get rid of that church in Hawaii, and now they moved to, I didn't say the rest, they now moved to Michigan, and now they're starting to do it in Michigan. They are not our enemy. They're blinded. Let's not be surprised that blind men walk into walls. But our response is, I implore you, on the behalf of Christ, would you be reconciled be with God? That's, our, that's, that's how we respond. Now that, I'm not asking you to stand and, and be abused at work or things like that. I think you understand what we're saying here. But what would be the difference? That instead of being mad at our spouse, being mad at our kids, being mad at our bosses, being mad at our president, being mad at this, if we begin to pray for them, Lord, open their eyes to the gospel. What if that was the reaction of God's people? I think you would see the Lord adding daily to the church those who will be saved. This ignorance, because they are blinded, this ignorance of the gospel of God will lead many to reject us and Christ and causing them to strike out in various ways. That's what we're seeing more and more. Yet we are to endure all of this knowing that God will bring things into balance. Scripture warns us in the book of Hebrews that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the Him who we must give account. Those who prosecute and persecute God's children will be put to shame on the day of judgment. And so, but my goal is not vengeance. I can't wait for them to get theirs. My God, or my, my prayer is, God, have mercy on them. Let them see you. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that they do that today here in God's church rather than at the throne room of God when it's too late. 
as he cast them into eternal conscious torment. The sixth observation as we come to an end here is Peter gives some good advice about suffering. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You can mark this down. You can even make a meme on Facebook and Instagram if you want. Suffering is part of God's will. From Job, Joseph, Daniel, Peter, Stephen, William Tyndale, Jim Elliot, etc., God's children will suffer. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are in danger of losing it all or even death at this moment, at least not here in Orange County. But suffer we must in various degrees. Even in this room, some of you have suffered more for Christ while others may have not. Suffering is not a sign, again, of God's displeasure, but also the reverse is true. Let us not think that a lack of suffering is a sign of God's blessing. To each, God in his wisdom has assigned our path. Our journey down that path may be unknown to you and I. And it may be fraught with danger or with blessings. Yet God is with each and every step. The psalmist sings, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast head down or headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. Let me share this with you from the words of Peter. If you are going to suffer in this life, let it be for following God's commands rather than following evil. So for us, let's jump 2,000 years now. How do we respond to this message written to those early elect exiles living in, in, in Asia Minor? What comfort do we find here? What promise can we hold on to? What strength do we find here? Well, let me just close with these. You and I should respond as the apostles. And how did they respond? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. You hate me because I love Jesus? Well, praise God. We should respond with joy. We find comfort in that we are never out of God's hand, even in suffering. For who can separate us from the love of God? No one can. Job himself realized this as he he sunk deeper and deeper. The Psalms are filled with David crying out and God delivering him. We also hold on to the promises of God's eternal reward. That in sharing in the sufferings of Christ, we will be like him. For the John the Apostle wrote this, We are God's children now in the midst of suffering. That's my words. But we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when God appears or Christ appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. That's his promise. I go to prepare a place for you. I will not leave you as orphans. And one last word in conclusion. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go back to one, our strength. What strength do we find? Well, our strength finds its source in Christ. And like Paul, we are called to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul said, I stress towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ and let those who are mature think this way. Think this way. And then one little word in conclusion. 
our obedience and suffering, our obedience and suffering for Christ will lead some to the cross, but to others it will repel them. So in all these things, whether they brought to Christ or whether none or not, we are to endure, we are to pray, we are to obey, trusting in the word of God that informs us that you and I, as ambassadors of Christ, are the aroma of Christ to God among, among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death, but to the others, we're a fragrance of life to life. Today, you're being sent out, not only as ambassadors, but an aroma. You're a cologne and a perfume. I can't say that. To some, they will smell and they will be joined and they say, oh, I love that, let me hear more. To others, it will repel them and they will respond with hostility. Those left in their blinded ignorance. To that point, understanding that it's not in our hands to persuade them to Christ, but to be obedient to the words of Christ, enduring that, submitting through suffering. To that point, let us boldly obey God's word in defiance of all circumstances and consequences, that God may be glorified as you and I proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And may God do others, bring others through the same thing through our testimony. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as the worship team comes up, I'm going to ask you to just take a moment as we pause and consider and pray and respond to what God's Word has given us. I've given one message that might have been responded or heard by 30 different people in 30 different ways. The Holy Spirit's going to call you to respond in the way that He's designed today. Would you respond? Would you ask, Lord, what strength do I need? Am I following you? Am I finding joy in suffering. Lord, make me sufficient for this. Give me a purer heart. Make my conduct more becoming as an ambassador of you. Whatever it may be, we respond to the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask you for more of your grace and strength. I pray that you would be bless us and that you would make us sufficient for such things. For in my own heart and in my own will, I know that I do not have the discipline and the strength to respond to hostility in this such a way. There are many times I do not rejoice in suffering. But Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts and help us to see that we are no closer, no more closer to you than in those times and in those days. Make us sufficient and may we glorify you. And may we rejoice to those who may come to know you through our suffering. We thank you that you have given us the ability and the calling to do so. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.